warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Welcome to the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies. Just a hint of professionalism. Hi, I'm your host Scott. With me today, travelling down the Skype airways direct from York, is my dear friend and co-host Stephen. Good afternoon. Afternoon, mate. This is unusual to be doing it on an afternoon, but still. And a Saturday, um, yes. We, we like to accommodate um, guests when we can, and we've got a marvellous one today, haven't we? We have indeed oh, a special episode. <laughs> Fellow podcaster. He's chosen today's movie. It's Anthony from the Glass Onion Podcast. Good afternoon, Anthony. Hi, how you doing? Scott uh, and Stephen. Very well, mate. Very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good to have you on. I am half Italian, so I wouldn't describe myself as very British, but <laughs> I am I am English in the end. So, yes. Very British podcaster. <laughs> you count, sir. You absolutely count. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Members of our Facebook group and followers on the Twitter account may be aware of Anthony because I've appeared on... Is it four of your shows now? Uh, it was three. It was two conversations, and it, it's gone out as three parts. That so it was, was a one-parter and a two-parter. But it's a good few hours. It was, and very, very enjoyable. I mean, it's the Glass Onion podcast. People that are in the know will know what Glass Onion's referring to. What's your podcast all about, mate? All right, yeah, it's Glass Onion on John Lennon. I don't mean to be uh, picky. It's only because <laughs> no, it's only because this other one's called Glass Onion. Oh, right, it's okay. such a it's such a cool title. Yeah, it's <laughs> the name of a song off the White Album that was mostly written by John Lennon. And um, yeah, it's a John Lennon podcast. Obviously, on iTunes, there's a lot of Beatles podcasts out there, but I think I'm right in saying that it's the only specialist John Lennon one at the moment. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, I mean, I've I've been a uh, very big fan slash obsessive about him for 30 odd years and about a year ago i put it to work finally and accumulated a lot of knowledge and i guess it's uh i suppose it's what they call in america a deep dive you know it's <laughs> trying to i have a sort of psychology background not professional but academic and yeah just trying to look a bit deeper and uh had some lovely guests uh you've been on there as you said scott and had oh, some Beatles. I was going to say, there's there's far more important people than me. <laughs> I mean, you had one of the original Quarry Men on there. Uh, excuse me, I've had two of the original <laughs> Quarry Men. <laughs> exactly. I mean, are, there, are there only two left? I'm not too sure. Uh, it, it depends because there are ones that kind of left the band at certain times and then they've resurfaced 40 years later. Right. So they were kind of in the Quarrymen and kind of in the Beatles. But now there's two two of the original ones: Rod Davis and Colin Hanton. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was quite surreal, actually, to go to Colin's house in Liverpool and talk about this stuff. But that was great. And um, just um, as a, I mean, my podcasts are quite long. And just to give you a quite a comical example, 
Uh, there's a fella called Ken McNabb who wrote a book called And in the End, The Last Days of the Beatles. And it came out last year. And I was kind of excited to have a current author on the show. Hmm. So I, I listened to a couple of sort of mainstream interviews. And they were sort of 20 minutes, half an hour. And his book goes from January to December. And Scott, as you'll know, when you get on my show and we start talking, yes, the, the clock just kind of goes out the window. Yeah. And, and Ken and I, over three Skype talks, we ended up recording nearly four hours which I ruthlessly cut down to three hours, 45 minutes. Um, but it was so funny to see that he'd done like mainstream interviews at 20 minutes. We, we did, yeah, nearly four hours. That was great. Yeah. But I've, I've had loads of fun, and I'm now in kind of the Beatles family on, on, on social media, and they're all lovely, and I get access to some amazing people. Yeah. So uh, it's a great journey. Stephen, are you a Beatles fan, John Lennon fan? I'm not really sure. Yeah, I mean... Uh, not um, in any way as in depth in my uh, fandom as as you two, mm. but um, but yeah, I certainly have an appreciation for, for the Beatles and uh, you know John Lennon um, solo that um, you know can't be denied his you know his influence and his, the, the quality of the music I listen to to you know the Beatles and um, and Lennon sort of more casually than I would imagine the the pair of you do. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm I describe myself as a fan of, of of uh, Beatles and Lennon, so um, you know the podcast uh, I've you know downloaded but not actually listened to. I must confess to Anthony, I've downloaded right. but not not got around to it yet. Um, but um, you know it's something that interests me to to listen to. So well, one thing um, you'll know about Anthony's podcast when you do get to listen to it: this guy sitting here at the other end of a Skype line goes into great detail, great preparation. Mm. Um, we've selected a movie. It's no surprise that it's got Mr. Lennon in it. Mm. And and if you look at the posters and the DVD covers, you'd think it was a John Lennon movie. Yes. <laughs> I was um, just going to say that. They're a little bit uh, sneaky with his billing, yeah. his second billing, aren't they? We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. It's no <laughs> surprise then that today, it's, it's, I think it's probably his only non-musical movie role. It's back to 1967. It's How I Won the War, directed by Richard Lester. We'll take a break. We'll be back straight after this. How many of you sitting there on this rather pleasant summer's afternoon, or whatever, know more about the victories of your local football team than about those of your local regiment? Am I right? Good luck to your football team, but give a hand to your army too. won the war. The memoirs of Lieutenant Ernest Goodbody. Every word of this film is written in pencil in my own handwriting. We are English. Uh, Musketeer Gripweed, my faithful Batman. Nice place you got here. Corporal of Musket Transom, my troop sergeant and a good all-rounder. Tillerant! Salute! Splinter! There you are! Hit them rifles! You won't break them! To the front! Salute! 
Musketeer Juniper, a joy to have on any team, and one of the original BEFs. Let us go into the ring. And this, our first round. For the light of battle in our eyes, and the strength of the righteous in our hearts. You can't do that, say he's a private soldier. He's a stinging coward. Ah. What's going on here? That boy's only 19. Here, hold this camel. Hit somebody your own rank or near it. Who are you? I'm Grapple MC, Grapple of the Bedouin. Look at them all shining bright. I don't want them shining bright. I want them sticky. <laughs> Couple of muskets. <laughs> Condensed milk. But all you're good for, Clapper, sticking in tins. Oh. <laughs> wait! Have you found the roller? Oh, get away! Get away! Get away! on the 23rd of October 1967 directed as we said by Richard Lester starring and he is second build John Lennon as the second build but starring Michael Crawford there's Roy Kinnear Lee Montague Jack McGowan Michael Horden's in there Ronald Lacey Robert Hardy Sheila Hancock uh, there's a couple of famous female actresses that you pointed out to me off air, Anthony, that appeared in Help. Mm. I mean, we'll come into all of this with the cast and the crew. Briefest of synopsis. The movie features Beatle John Lennon and Roy Kinnear as ill-fated enlisted men under the inept command of Lieutenant Ernest Goodbody, played by Michael Crawford. The story unwinds mostly in flashbacks of Lieutenant Goodbody, who has a lower-class beginning, an education which makes him a poor officer who commands one of the worst units of the army. I watched this a couple of nights ago, and as I'm sitting there, I thought, you know what, I don't think I actually know this film at all. If mm. if I had seen it previously, I've completely forgotten it. And sort of honestly now, looking back, I don't think I had actually seen it. So I'm going to class this as a first-time watch for me. Mm. Briefly, Anthony, was this a first time for you, sir? Well, I watched it once years ago, mm-hmm. but to be perfectly honest, I was very young, 21, 22. All I was interested in was John Lennon. Yep. I was like, John Lennon's in a film and I haven't seen it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I, I just I just was looking out for John Lennon the whole time. And uh, I think I wasn't really old enough to really get any of the subtleties of it. So I'd call it more or less a first watch last okay. night. Stephen, yourself? I think I have seen bits of it, whether it was in review uh, the mention as part of some other um, TV program or something over where they're talking about somebody's career or they're talking about John Lennon maybe and they're showing sort of clips and mm. um, that's the only bit really as far as I'm aware of uh, of actually that it 
watching wise I'm aware, I'm aware the film existed but no I've never seen it in its entirety before at all I don't remember it ever being on the TV I don't remember it being shown no no as I say I think it was maybe that it was some you know some clips them, them showing it might have even been in reference to other people you know like mm. Roy Kinnear or whatever that you know when he died and, and doing a retrospective of his career or whatever so um, certainly wasn't wasn't something I've seen on television and, and was aware it's ever been shown on television. So even okay. our our usual sort of midnight on a Friday back <laughs> it, it didn't in exist. 1987 no. sort of thing that me and Scotland uh, are often saying that we saw these films on a night out, after a night out on a, or a bank holiday BBC weekend. Tour, or, you know, yeah. Or a bank holiday weekend, yeah. I don't this think it did. No, I don't think this is one of those. So underseen, it'll be fair to say. Yeah. So... I'm going to go for initial responses to our first-time watches then. Anthony, first-time watch. Ooh. I mean, be as brief or as extensive as, as extensive <laughs> as you want with this, mate. Oh, God. How long have you got? Go for it. All go right. I sat, I sat down last night and um, I started watching it. And as you know, I, I do start making notes and the old ideas generated just <laughs> goes crazy. I started writing down quotable lines. Mm. Um it was a bit of a. I was a bit exhausted by the end because I kind of the point was made pretty early, but the film did something very, I think, very impressive, which was it got darker and darker as it went on, mm-hmm. and I was actually thinking by the end of it, this is very very bleak. It's kind of a bit like Catch Twenty Two, in that yeah. it's comedy. Um, basically, I was kind of looking forward to watching it again. I had to work this morning, but I feel like if I watch it again, I'll probably going to enjoy it or going to get even more out of it but i felt like there's so many references that it could be a film that's actually more notable for its references and its style rather than its necessarily entertainment value yeah but there was stuff about it i loved as i said i was a bit exhausted by the end of it but it did kind of build momentum and so yeah in short i liked it a lot okay Stephen, first impressions mate I think conceptually is is where it wins, um, as far as the the idea behind it and where they were going in that sense. I think, unfortunately, it, the execution didn't perhaps manage to achieve what it it wanted to achieve. It's, although I think ultimately it will be very much a, a bit of a marmite film as far as whether people like it or not. Um, you know, I fell on the side of of liking it, but. Mm. I don't think it's I don't think it's an easy film to like in some senses because it it, it does it, it does try to actually do something out of the norm and unless you're on board with that from the start I think it's very easy for this to to lose you um yeah. and I I agree with what Anthony said I think that the um the returns on this would perhaps be from rewatching it because it, it, it won't not immediately enjoyable in some ways. Um, it was interesting, but not necessarily enjoyable in 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 a sense. Um, but I think watching it again, I think it would it would improve my appreciation of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm agreeing with the second viewing for the the, the pair of you have commented on, mm. but mine's for a slightly different reason. I struggled with this. Now, listeners and Stephen will be very aware that I'm quite forgiving in my movie watching. I try and see merits in everything I watch. 
because I'm no Richard Lester. I'm no Roy Kinnear. I can't act. I can't direct. I couldn't write a script. So I've got a lot of admiration for people that can do that. I think I went into this blinkered. I went in expecting a Richard Lester knockabout comedy because it's got Michael Horden in it, because it's got Roy Kinnear. Mm. Uh, a supporting cast including Gretchen Franklin and Dandy Nichols who we'll mention at some point later and I'm thinking okay I've got this military farce pictured in my head and within about 30 seconds it goes off in a direction that I least expected Mm. so I'm on the back foot watching this from the start I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it I'm not saying I hated it or anything like that I think I've I've got to go back and watch it again with a different frame of mind I enjoyed it I mean looking back at Richard Lester's career we know the man can make great movies and we know he can be surreal at times as well there's some real Mm. surreal moments in Help and and Hard Day's Night amongst other movies that he makes as well Yeah. but for me I I don't want to say I enjoyed it I I was troubled by it because I really (laughs) struggled um but I'm interested to see two different points of view that I'm going to get from you guys as well to try and not necessarily convince me, but to just explain a few things to me. And I think I missed a lot because I was scratching my head through a lot of this. And I've seen a fair few movies in my time, so I don't think it's me. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go to some reviews where people are praising it from the rooftops and others just don't get it the same as me and i know you've got some reviews and some bits you want to read to us as well anthony at some point today yeah i'll do that a bit later yeah, reactions yeah. and yeah. stuff like that so mm. where do we want to start i mean generally it's not a military farce it's not a knockabout comedy what is it um well i wrote down some genres actually i mean obviously black comedy um it's actually it's an anti-war satire but uh, the thing I'm going to read a bit later is actually talking about how it's an anti-war film, war film, anti-war film, film. I know what you sense. mean, an anti-war movie film. <laughs> I think one of the things in its favour, it's um, almost like the Citizen Kane effect. You know that a lot of people will watch Citizen Kane and say, how can this possibly be the best film ever made? Because they're expecting something that's going to blow them away. But mm. a lot of the Citizen Kane thing is what, what um, didn't exist before that film. And I think with this one, I mean, obviously, you must have seen a bit of Monty Python in there, even if, if it was the spirit rather than the execution. I think this predated Catch-22, even. It obviously predated Blackadder the Fourth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, you, you know, the Michael Horden character's got a little bit of, um, uh, what's this called, General Melchit. Yeah. This was obviously after Strange Love, but I, I made notes about sort of references, and those four leapt out. So uh, it's very impressionistic. It's got all that people. It's got stuff to camera. There's a bit at the beginning with the dinghy, which I didn't. I didn't totally understand. But one of the soldiers suddenly got a pint in his hand. Yeah, stuff like that. I feel like if you watched it again, perhaps now you've seen it all the way through, and there's a certain releasing of pressure when you see a film for a second time. It's like I've seen it. Now I can kind of relax and just in kind of enjoy it and just let certain details sit with me. I think if you if you watched it again in a sort of freewheeling way where there's no real story, it's just an idiot officer, a bunch of working class soldiers who kind of know more than him. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It can be quite a, a sort of freeing experience because there's, there's no real plot to speak of. We, you know? we mentioned that with Bunny Lake is missing. Um, it was a big thing uh, for me with my second viewing. 
Mm. Because you didn't know the plot originally, you're sort of edge of your seat trying to work out why is this being mentioned? Why is this character doing this? Why are they going there? And, and I said to Stephen on the second viewing, because I didn't have that pressure of, mm. of trying to fathom things out so much. The second viewing was far, far better. And I'm expecting it from this. Already, as I say, within that first five, ten minutes, it was very surreal. So I knew it was going to go down a slightly different tack to what I was expecting. Stephen, mm. I mean, for yourself, I mean, how would you describe this? It's not knockabout comedy. It is very black. It's very dark. It is. And I think that to, to pick up on Anthony's point there about the anti-war element, I think that the focus of this is is not necessarily the anti anti-war but anti-military um and i think that's a lot of where its focus is right you know rather than some anti-war films being um very much you know about the about the futility of war which there is a sense of that in in there it's about the 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 machine of um an army of the military being you know not not really fit for purpose and and how um it doesn't work for for certain situations and in this sense you know the people that had thrown together and then the mechanism of trying to fight the war and who who are leading the war particularly in that sense as far as the um the rich rich posh people being the ones that are, are, are the officers um and then being clueless and their objectives being you know the, the whole cricket pitch thing and being an example of mm. that those objectives not being to do have any practical purpose that that has a, a lot in it. I, I do completely accept that the chaoticness of this, um, which is to some extent the surrealness that you have with, with Python and um, I suppose um, with Spike Milligan, his influence on it as well and, and stuff. And yes, that that can be I think felt in there, and, and definitely it was, it was the concept was there to have that that challenge and, and that knockabout in some sense comedy wise but with with a, the satire in there but i think it's satirical rather than you know rather than just being an outright comedy is 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 somewhere to focus on i yeah. just um it how it actually achieved its purposes is a different matter i'm not sure whether it, it it actually did achieve what it set out to do but that you know if it achieves something else instead that's fine but mm. i completely accept that there's a difficulty in going into this not knowing what you were expecting and then being able to ride with it and not feeling like you just, you can't adjust in time. No. And, and, and a second watch is what's needed. Definitely. I felt cheated. It doesn't, it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't sort of take any prisons and it doesn't pause. It just got, just goes sort of all out on, on its concept yeah. without giving you a chance to sort of ease yourself into that idea. Yeah. Um, That's right. And, and, you know, for good or ill on that, and that may be why uh, commercially maybe didn't do as, as great um, originally, but it's um, it's got this cult following on it. Definitely, yeah. Mainly because of the man who was second on the bill, I think. <laughs> well, that has a, a certain amount to do with it. I mean, I, I don't imagine we'd probably be talking about it now if it wasn't for him. Yeah, I've, I've got a funny feeling this is, you know, would have been one of those lost movies because – if John Lennon hadn't appeared in this and it was just a Richard Lester war movie or a protest movie or, or some sort of statement he was making or some sort of like experimental surreal movie, mm. it would be registered as a flop and it would have just been 
designated to the dustbin somewhere because he then makes a bit of a comeback in the early 70s with the Musketeer movies and the stuff that he's also famous for after the Beatles. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going back to watch this. I, as I say, I felt cheated in a way because I was expecting, you know, when you see Roy Kinnear and Michael Horden, you're expecting a completely different movie. Mm. We've got to talk about Mr. Lennon because this is the, the reason you're here, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me what you know about this. Tell, tell me how this all came about. What's, what's the chronology? Where does this sit in the history of the Beatles? It's 67, isn't it? This movie came out. So. Yeah, yeah, made in '66. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, you'll be pleased to know I'm wearing my John Lennon anorak today, metaphorically. <laughs> so I'm, I'm on. I'm in uh, full. I'm on full power. Come on, educator, um, sir. Go on. Yeah. Well, basically, hard. Well, the Beatles emerged in '63. Hard Day's Night in Help was '64 and '65. '64 um, was very much kind of mop top still, and Hard Day's Night. Um, it's probably the most, the best regarded of all the Beatles films. Mm. It's sort of black and white. It's a little bit surreal, as you said. And they made, they made help and they were mostly stoned. I mean, in John Lennon's words, they were smoking marijuana for breakfast at that time. So <laughs> that's much more of a caper. But it's amazing actually in their history how quickly, um, their press conferences and things changed when John Lennon and to some extent George Harrison became involved in the, in uh, sorry, became interested in talking about the Vietnam War, mm. and I was surprised actually doing a bit of research again how early John Lennon got in with that because in '66 the anti-war movement wasn't really in full flow. That was more '67, '68, but he was actually making comments about Vietnam on their last tour because they stopped touring in '66. Yeah. Anyway, he goes off to Almeria in Spain, which has been used for lots of films. I think it was made for some, used for some of the spaghetti westerns. I think it was, I got yeah. Right. Mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had his hair cut short and got the granny glasses for the film and then decided to, to keep the granny glasses, and they obviously became part <laughs> of the John Lennon image that we know and love. Um, he spent a lot of time sort of lying around. Obviously, you have, when you're making a film, you have to, spend a lot of time sitting around and then you suddenly have to spring into action. Um, he famously wrote Strawberry Fields. He spent six weeks in uh, Almeria and spent all the six weeks uh, gradually constructing that song, which obviously became a famous song. I think it was a big deal for him because it was a non-Beatles thing. Um, do you want me to comment on his acting now? Or shall carry I? on. Please carry on because I think the focus of this is going to be on John Lennon for a lot of the conversation we're going to have at least for yeah. the next 20, 30 minutes, I think, rather than the film itself. Because I think John Lennon appearing in this movie is more famous than the movie itself. Am I right in saying that? I'm sure. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Mm. Um, as we've already alluded to, I mean, they're a bit sort of cheeky having him as second build and he appears on the, on the DVD jacket nowadays. Yeah. Really? I mean, I was thinking about it. Obviously, Michael Crawford's the main character. I think Lee Montague as Corporal mm -hmm. of Musket Transom, if that makes sense. Is that his name? Yeah, something like that. Yep, yep. <laughs> I would say he's definitely the second in it. He's in it a lot. I mean, it, yeah. it's mostly him and Michael Crawford. Roy Kinnear's there, a few other people. But John Lennon just sort of pops in and out. And he, he's acting, his sort of deadpan style works as a sort of non-acting. I mean... He, he came up with a great quote himself. I think when they made Hard Day's Night and they're on tour and someone said, oh, 
are you pleased with this film? And he said, it's as good a film as any, anybody that can make that can't act. <laughs> Which is typical John Lennon, straight to the point, yeah. bluntness. Yeah. And it, it kind of works. Like someone comes up to him and says, are you married? And he says, no, I play the harmonica. Yes. Great line. And because, yeah. Yeah, because that line doesn't really mean anything at all. Or <laughs> he's was... non, he's really his non-acting. Because the bits, the only two bits I remember where he has any kind of acting to do he does, there's a bit towards the end where he's, uh, I can't even remember what he says. And then obviously the death scene, which is tremendously eerie considering, of course, that he was killed and shot in 1980. This is 14 years earlier. Yeah. That death scene, again, it's hard to sort of separate it from what actually happened in real life. But that scene's not bad. I mean, I think he kind of, because he was anti-war and he was already talking about it on the Beatles tours, I think he was quite into this film in that way, but I think he spent a lot of time as said, lying around getting stoned. It was a crossroads in the Beatles life. He wasn't sure what he was going to do with the rest of his life. So I don't know, as an actor, I, I think I wouldn't rate him particularly highly, but it kind of works for this one. I think Richard Lester was a sympathetic kind of a father figure or an uncle perhaps. And sort of, I would say Molly called him, but he was aware of his insecurities. And I, I think he was a good person to have directing this. I think if they'd had like Otto Preminger or some sort of <laughs> hard nosed fascist director, I think John Lennon would have had a nightmare. But... Can you imagine it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, th I think I read somewhere that he found it quite boring actually, because yeah. you know, the mechanics of making a movie can be quite arduous and tedious. So didn't Ringo actually fly out for a while? Yeah. Ringo and Neil Aspinall. And Neil Aspinall one, as well. Yeah. One, yeah. one of their, um, one of their two roadies. And uh, it's funny, he was staying in a villa in Almeria, and the villa had these distinctive gates, and it also had uh, fruit bushes, and it reminded him of Strawberry Field, which oh, is, originally right. was a Salvation Army home with bright red gates and strawberry bushes. So he was inspired to watch that, to, to write that song. So I think, I think the film is probably most known for him and the fact that he composed Strawberry Fields while he was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I ask you guys what you think of his acting? Because I'm, I'm very, very curious. <laughs> All I'm going to say is if you, if you add up the total minutes time that he's on screen, it must be less than five. Yeah, there, probably. There, there can't be that many scenes with it. And his acting in this is reduced pretty much to one-liners. He has no exactly. great soliloquies or, you know, great statements to make. He's reacting rather than acting in a lot of this just that one when he dies obviously yeah that's a that's, bit that's, of, that's a little bit of a speech yeah i think um for, for for me um the way to to describe it as john lennon plays john lennon very well <laughs> yeah. um because essentially that's what he's doing i mean we know um his one-liners he was quite good at that um in real life mm, yeah. so although you know he did have more to him when he was actually would have time and the opportunity to go off on, on one, but he would he he was very good at one-liners, um, particularly for quoting for the press and stuff. Yeah. And this is very much him just playing himself, really, in that sense. And I think it's a shame in in some ways because with him being second build, I think if they decided to do more with that and actually make more of his character, I feel that it could it would have actually enhanced the film, um, not because it was Lennon, but because of um the character itself maybe i think had more mileage in it than was actually seen 
Um, but unfortunately, the for one reason or another, whether they didn't want to overshadow the rest of the film by um, Len taking a prominent position in the storyline, um, yeah. despite them using him for the publicity, um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the people who decide on the publicity aren't the same people who decide on, on the making of the film. So it was perhaps, um, as you say, a cheeky usage of his name as second but in rather than it being an intention from uh, Richard Lester. But um, the 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 there was more more mileage in his character, but he, for what he did, what he had to play with, as you say, occasional one lines. Um, I don't feel that there was much more he could do. No, and really. we we, yeah. we know he can act because Anthony, as you know from Hard Days Night and Help, he's mm. certainly got well, he's got a quarter of the screen time in both of those movies. Yeah. And you don't look at either of those movies and think, oh, that's, that's not good acting. He's, he is very competent. He's certainly better than Ringo was in the pair of the movies. That's for sure. <laughs> but, right. you know, his acting ability, I don't think, question because he, I don't think he's given the opportunity to shine in this movie. Mm. And people, um, well, go on, go on. Go, yeah, but as I say, but considering the, the billing, as Stephen said, and second on the bill. And, and it's mm. a shame that this movie is only remembered as being that movie with John Lennon in it. Because yeah. from what we said earlier, and I think what we'll probably develop on as well, there's a lot more to this movie than just Roy Kinnear, John Lennon, and, you know, just a couple of famous funny faces from British cinema of the 60s being in it. There's, mm. a, there's a statement being sort of developed here. I still haven't grasped what it is. That's for sure. I'm still in the dark as to, to what this yeah. movie really is about. Um, can, I, mm. can I just take one more point about John Lennon's acting? I think, mm. I think almost as an explanation why he's not in it, he was, I mean, anyone who knows anything about him will know that he was a, he was always a curious mixture of confidence and insecurity. And, um, I hate to sort of labor the marijuana point, but he, he was sort of lying around, apparently smoking this extremely strong Spanish, uh, weed. And his attention span was already pretty short. And I honestly, he comes across, although he comes across as a, his character comes across as sort of cheeky. I also get the feeling like if he actually was given more acting to do, it might have freaked him out. <laughs> okay. You know, because he was in a very, very fragile state at that point, And plus the drugs. And I think I'm not hundred percent sure there was too much more there. I think there was in theory, but, um, I mean, he's very good with the... He plays up the Scouse accent. There's that famous bit where he, he drives past and goes, Sir, me feet sweat. <laughs> That's right, like that. yeah. Mm. And I mean, he, uh, this book I'm going to quote from later, it says uh, his, his, his Scouse accent is wonderful in this, you know, because mm. it's not quite his accent. He's playing it up for sure. Yes. Yeah. But uh, it would have been nice to see more and to, to, to see him challenged a bit more, but I'm just not sure if he was into it. You know, I think it, maybe his attention span was too short, perhaps. Have you guys done any sort of research into the background of this movie? Because I think I read somewhere that the original source material, which mm. was a novel, I believe, or a short story, has yeah. none of that surreal element to it. It's quite a straight-lined first-person account of the war from sort of the Michael Crawford character's point of view. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's based on a novel. Yeah, I haven't read the novel, but yeah, I think so. I think a lot of the, a lot of that, all the surreal stuff and the, the stuff that was quite ahead of its time. I think that's mostly Richard Lester, as far yeah. as I know. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about some of the other characters because, okay. uh, as you may be aware, Anthony, we have 
the Hall of Fame, the Village Hall of Fame. We're not grand enough to have a Hall of Fame. We've only got the Village Hall of Fame here at Real Britannia, where we yeah. celebrate previous appearances of, of cast members. So if somebody's appeared three times on the show, they'll get inducted into the Village Hall of Fame. John Lennon, certainly, I think this is his first appearance. Now, our curator of the Hall of Fame is Stephen, who has... By sheerest coincidence. Yeah, who happens yeah. to be here. Um, Fortunate, yeah. Who has come up with this amazing Excel spreadsheet. I mean, how he does it, it's like... Um, do you remember fantasy football with um, mm. Frank Skinner and, and David Dillon? Do you remember yeah. Stato? Well, yeah. <laughs> Stephen is our Stato when it comes to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and... The, the man's knowledge of who's appeared where and when in what movie is is fascinating. So can I just hand you over to Stephen to to talk about the inductees in today's Hall of Fame? Because I know there's a, a there's a fourth appearance, I know for a fact, but go on, mate. Well, there's, there's actually a sixth appearance. <laughs> um, okay. Um, a guy called Jack Mayer. Um, this is his sixth appearance, having previously appeared in uh, Pool of London, Seven Days to Noon, Brief Encounter, oh. A Night to Remember, and Troubling Star. Um, but yeah, you're right. You're right. We have at least one um, fourth appearance, a fifth appearance, um, and two two new inductees. Wow, great. Um, so um, Dandy Nichols is as a fifth appearance, and uh, you know, happy to see her again. Mm-hmm. Uh, great character actress. Um, Michael Horden, as we've already alluded to, this is actually his fourth appearance. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've got that going on. But the, as far as the new inductees, um, Roy Kinnear, I think we're, we're familiar with him as an actor, mm. um, re- easily recognisable, and he was in Heavens Above and Melody previously. Oh, wow. Um, so, so that's good to finally get him in, in the Excellent. Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, there's also a guy called John Junkin. Ah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and tonight I briefly not, spoke off air about John Junkin. Yeah, so Tell not us, as not as immediately recognisable for people, but they will probably recognise his face if they have familiarity with um, British cinema and, and to some extent television. Yeah, um, and he was in Heavens Above and Theatre of Blood previously. So we have new inductees as well as a few uh, repeat offenders. Because Anthony knows him mm. from Hard Day's Night. Yeah, he's one of the roadies. Yeah, yeah. he appears. I'm just looking on Wikipedia. John Junkin as Large Child. That was quite it. Funny. Yeah, Large Child is builders. Yeah, it's that great. It's that great bit where um, Michael Crawford's character says, "Oh yes, we'll meet in the future and talk about the war." A, a bit like Blackadder, actually. Do you remember in Blackadder when? Uh, yeah. George and George is saying, "Yes, it's uh, we can." meet in the future and relive the old days and <laughs> Blackadder says like, yeah let's dig a big hole in the garden and get your gamekeeper to shoot at us <laughs> and there's a bit where yeah Michael Crawford's character says that and then they just go to this it's actually really dark it's this totally shell-shocked character with these staring eyes and John mm. Junkin just appears for a second as large child yeah Two new inductees and some some extra faces have got some extra appearances. So that's it. That's the synopsis of what we've got. Yeah, I mean, some of them, you know, sometimes we have on this that there's maybe just one person, um, and sometimes there's an avalanche of about twenty. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. this is sort of mid t- mid league on that as far as it goes. But oh. it's nice to get Roy Kinnear, yeah, um, in finally after um, a few appearances. Wasn't uh, expecting was too many. Yeah, wasn't expecting too many to be honest with this one. Anthony, you've you've alluded to this yeah. this extract you want to read from. What what is, what's this book you've got there, sir? What is it? Okay, this is actually a book called "Come Together: John Lennon in His Time," and it's all about John Lennon's political activities. Mm. But they just go to um, 
high one than well, one. Can I just read a couple of paragraphs? Of course you can, mate. No problem. All right. Um, so they go through the plot, which is obviously this building a cricket pitch far behind enemy lines, uh, which is wonderfully uh, pointless. <laughs> So, How I Won the War had only a superficial resemblance to black comedy or satire like Dr. Strangelove. It was a radically new kind of film which drew upon elements of avant-garde theatre. Lester, Richard Lester, repeatedly broke the narrative we expect in a movie. Actors stepped out of their roles to address the audience or appeared suddenly in strange costumes. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Death scenes were interrupted by the appearance of parents on the battlefields, which very much, I think, influenced Monty Python, you know, like the police turning up or the historian turning up in the middle of Holy Grail, you know? Yeah, well, stop um, it, that's far too w- silly. The, the the Sergeant Major would turn up, wouldn't he, Graham Chapman? Stop it, it's getting far too silly, you know. Yeah. I was just going to say, the Michael <laughs> Horden character could have easily been played by Graham Chapman, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It says, How I Won the War was, above all, a critique of war movies. Everyone carries war movies in their heads, Lester suggested, especially soldiers. Da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and then he talks about Lester started with the familiar dramatic device of the buddies on the battlefield and then brutally interrupted it by ins- inserting newsreel footage of real World War II battles. Yes. That was Dresden. It wasn't Dresden, was it? Dunkirk. Mm. Showing sickening scenes of anonymous mass slaughter. Virtually all the fictional soldiers died too, and none died Hollywood deaths, heroes in the eyes of their buddies and thus the audience. Their deaths were lonely, miserable, and absurd. Lester showed heroism to be a pathetic, deadly illusion in modern war. He linked Hollywood's glorification of past wars with contemporary issues towards the end of the film. This was a great bit. When one ghostly soldier said to another, there's a new war shaping up in Vietnam. Do you think you'll be in it? <laughs> no, the other replied, I don't like the rector. <laughs> and he's alluding to those, did you notice those sort of toy soldiers who are kind of, I, I read on Wikipedia, I didn't work this out. Every time someone dies, did you notice the guys were sort of painted? They're I was going to ask about this. Colors. Yeah, that was that was apparently something I did read. Apparently, they were they were meant to be having the black and white scenes where they um, were actually fighting and they were doing the battles. They were meant yeah. to be a different color, and the soldiers then that had died, and they were then the, like the toy soldier, um, sort of plastic, all one color, mm. and it being quite so, a garish color. Um, they were each so. meant to be tinted based upon the 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 different battles scene that they they've been sort of killed in um but apparently there's some kind of confusion i think it's similar to our conversation that we had about um scott of the antique where um the the, yes. the, the, te- the technical people would decide to correct uh, cl- uh, correct the color um and <laughs> take out the, the have there and it kind of um spoiled it and there was a there is a version of this floating around or at least that was shown in the states um that had it reintroduced the different tints for the um, for the colours on the different battles, oh. but that's um, it's a, a really done sort of reintroduced rather than the actual release version because it was too late by the time. <laughs> so apparently that's where it is. But I think you're right that the the um, the way of making them like toy soldiers yeah. on colour and stuff was very much sort of that their their status as far as um, casualties was that they were just um, treated like. Um, toys that weren't actually deaths of, of real people. Yeah, not real people. Again, again, Blackadder goes forth because do you remember it's um, Jeffrey Palmer as Field Marshal Hagen? He's he's got a dustpan and brush and he's hoovering up the soldiers on his sort of toy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or he's got like a sort of small scale, uh, what do you call it, model of the battlefield with yeah. all these toy soldiers. 
and you just see him furiously brushing them into his dustpan <laughs> yeah. to show that they've died. So I think, would you agree that this film is pretty influential, like in its in a sort of understated way? That I think that this think? film is particularly filmmaking wise, and as as well as maybe some other ways, but artistically, I think this this um, film is a lot like um, the Velvet Underground whereby mm-hmm. at the time the, the actual popularity um, wasn't really there, but the, the, the people who have taken it on board and, and paid attention yeah. to it, particularly in its early days, they've gone on to run with it and take that to a different level, um, you know, similar to some of, some of the bands and stuff out there where they've, they've, they've taken a, a the, the attendees at a certain concert, there's been like 20 of them in the room and nobody else has been there, but each, each of those people have gone away and actually formed a band of their own. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the yeah. Sex Pistols gig in, in the Corn Exchange in Manchester was like oh, that, yeah. where everybody went off to go and even Mick Hucknall um, in the audience <laughs> went off to go do Simply Red. So um, <laughs> so I think it was influential in that sense that the, that the, the artistic community took influence from it and people managed to do something with it rather mm. than it being a change in wider culture as far as people suddenly taking it on board and it, it being a shift that people were more aware of as, as a populace. Mm. It's interesting we mentioned Monty Python earlier. Mm. This is two years before Python. Yeah, that's right. So there must be some, you know, some connection there. You wonder if 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 the Python team had seen this and taken away some of that, there you go, that Graham Chapman character, as you mentioned earlier. Well, well, there's a kind of through line that starts with the goons, mm-hmm. and then there's that thing called the running, jumping, standing still yes, film. Have you seen it. that? Yep. That's Richard Lester, and oh, it's got Sellers course, and yeah. probably, probably Milligan. And then the Beatles arrive, and then you've got the Bonzo Dog Doodah band, and they... They're kind of friendly, a bit friendly with the Beatles and a bit friendly with Python. And then mm. Python appears. So there's a fairly logical through line. It's one of those you know? family trees, isn't it? You see that family yeah. tree of comedy where they find them all, all the links and that. Yeah, you can and, see it. And uh, Do Not Adjust Your Set and all that kind of stuff, which yeah, they absolutely. did. You know, various, various other shows where some of that was um, almost like a horrible history thing of actually showing, you know, telling snapshots of, of historical events um, in an absurd manner. So, again, like you say, the, 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 there were very strong leaks and, and you yeah, know, I've been a fan of um, Bonzo Dogs. They were definitely quite central to it all, as, mm, uh, as you say, um, linking the, the various elements. And obviously we know from our own perspective and previous conversations on this podcast that the, the Pythons and the, the Beatles coming together with um, George films, Harrison's yeah. involvement with with handmade films and um, Life of Brian and things. So um, it was all they were all very much on the on the same page in some sense as far as changing what was um, the, their own field of of, of entertainment or, or artistry. But um, this this. This, I think, is is something that fits within that wider discussion and and um, projects that came out of all these people intermingling, I suppose. Um, although it's maybe a, a you know a lesser known one, really. Um, yeah. Maybe with some reason um, as well to to justify it being lesser known, because it is a bit more difficult to to swallow. I think in some senses. Yeah, it's a bit like. Um... I mean, have you guys seen all the Monty Python series? Yeah, well, I mean, yes. it was yes. Yeah. What you think about it? But I think, I mean, the films are just, I think, well, they're just 
absolute gold. I find actually when I'm living in the Far East and I got one of those dodgy uh, fake DVDs <laughs> that just had all of it on like one DVD and I, I binge watched it. Yeah. And I found almost like this one, it's just too much to take. <laughs> you, you almost need to have a break. But I felt that with their TV series, the I, sometimes towards the end, particularly because John Cleese left because he felt they were repeating themselves, yes. it started to get more like what it was influencing was perhaps more better than the actual entertainment value of it. I mean, I like the first couple of series of Monty Python, but sometimes that's the case. You know, its legacy is perhaps not so much entertainment as what it contributes to, you know, what comes later. Yeah. yeah. You know yeah. What I mean? This is going to be yeah. a very yeah. strange comparison. Yeah. But talk about Morecambe and Wise. Everybody remembers the Christmas specials right? and the, the striptease routine in the breakfast or Angela Rippon dancing or... Penelope yeah. Keith walking down the stairs and the stairs on Andre, Pre- Andre, Andre Previn. Previn. Yeah, all yeah. of those. You go back and you watch the Saturday after the Saturday evening shows that were on regularly from mm. 67 through to 78 or wherever it was on the BBC. They're not that good. They really aren't that good. And it's only the, the time when they get that little bit more of a budget and a little bit more polish to them. And they're the sketches that people remember. And it's the same with the Python stuff, as you say. The very first half a dozen, the first three, four, five episodes of Python were very patchy. Mm. It only really comes into its stride around mid-season two and three, I think. And as you say, Cleese leaves halfway through four, I think it is. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, we could talk about Python all day, the Morgan and Wise, but... This, as an influence, it, it's the whole thing at the time, isn't it? As you say, if you, if you can follow that road leading from the goons in the 50s, yeah, there is the influence, and this must be part of a movement. I'm trying to think if there were any other surreal-type movies that were released 66, 67 that would have been about about the same time. Anything strike you off the top of your heads, guys? Can you think of anything? Um, mm. Yeah, I was trying to, to think of this because mm. I, I think – yeah, you kind of need to know what, what hadn't come before, like I said yeah. earlier, to appreciate it. Uh, I'm trying to think. Ooh, not sure. No, but I bet there's something. I bet there there is this little movement going on at the end of the kitchen mm. sink era that's going into slightly surreal type British and Hollywood movies, I'm assuming. There's two little bits in the two Beatles films that he made. In Hard Day's Night... Uh, uh, Stephen, have you seen Hard Day's Night and Help? I have, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I haven't seen them for a while, but I have seen them, yeah. Okay, well, Hard Day's Night's got this famous bit on the train where they sing <laughs> Should Have Known Better, yes. and obviously we see um, Wilfred Bramble. Mm. Oh, yeah. But they suddenly cut to a bit where the Beatles are running alongside the train going, Mister, can I have my ball back? Yeah. And obviously, you know, they couldn't possibly be running along with the train because the train's going at however many miles an hour. And then in Help, I've just remembered this. This is fantastic. Obviously, the plot of Help is this silly plot where they're trying to get uh, what's it's the it's, it's ring, like is some it Leo McKern, isn't it? Is the is the yeah, the, it's some sort of sect, and they're yeah. trying to get the um, still do a Ringo's the, ring, isn't it? It's yeah, <laughs> Ringo's got this ring on his on his finger that's, and I think it's something to do with Kaili because they're going Kaili, <laughs> and they're trying to get this ring off this finger. But there's this brilliant bit where they suddenly cut to one of the women, and it's her mother bathing her and bathing and scrubbing all the paint off her and going, you've been up that temple again, haven't you? <laughs> you always come back at all hours covered in paint. 
So those that's very he obviously had that going because that's exactly the kind of thing that's in this film. Mm. And as I said, you see later in Holy Grail with the police arriving and the historian suddenly um, appearing and, and being killed. Being killed, exactly. So, but I, to answer your question, I'm not sure. I can't think of a whole film that was like that. No, Sorry. I mean, did, it, did Richard Lester direct The Bed Sitting Room a couple of years afterwards? That was him, wasn't it, with Peter Cook? Yeah, he did. I haven't seen it. Right. Like. Just yeah. look at the trailer. It will give you some idea of where he goes from this. He goes full-blown surrealism after that. Right, right. Um, it's, quite, it's quite unusual for an American. I, I don't... Yeah, I don't mean to denigrate it, but, <laughs> but no, I mean, there's this kind of idea that American culture isn't so filled with irony as, say, British culture. Would you say that's fair? I mean, I'm, that's not well, criticism. Well, certainly, certainly in those days. I mean, now, since you've got SNL, you know, Saturday Night Live, mm. that kind of dry humor, it's more a part of American culture. But I think I'm on safe ground in saying that wasn't the case then. I, I don't know. One of the things I was looking at to try and get my head around the movie was was critics' opinions and the everyday internet reviewers' opinions on this movie. And I believe there's a 50-50 split. Yes. Yeah. Stephen mentioned Marmite movie earlier. Mm. I'll give you an example. Let's, let's go with Roger Ebert. Everybody knows Roger Ebert. Mm. Literally one sentence. I got no impression from this film that Lester really personally cares very strongly one way or the other about war. It was only a currently fashionable subject, a good excuse to make a movie. So mm. Ebert pretty much didn't like it. Bosley Crowther, New York Times, again, quite a famous, eminent critic. I'm afraid Mr. Lester has not added a single discouragement of war, but simply a little discouragement towards patronising two pretentious films. Because that, that then relates to what you were saying about this being an anti-war movie movie. Mm. But then you've got people... Uh, time out saying, for example, dated maybe, but Lester's gruesomely black black anti-war comedy still looks inventive, manages occasionally to hit home with its blend of surreal lunacy and barb satire. There is a definite 50-50 split as to whether people like this, whether they got it, mm. whether they hated it. We've already sort of mentioned our initial thoughts on this and we think that a second viewing would vastly improve it. I, I do believe that. I do believe that if I go into a second viewing, I'm going to get a lot more out of this. I think so, yeah. 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 And yeah, and I think with reference to what you you know, the the, the critics reviews that you, you're referencing there, the you said it yourself at the beginning about, you know, you um you're not an actor or a director, so you're you're talking from a, a point of a viewer rather than somebody who who, who does those things. Yeah. Now, you know, I disagree with you slightly. I think that your um your forays into podcast documentary and stuff do give you a, a bit of a different angle than uh, just a, a a normal ordinary viewer of anything but i still um, want to be entertained though that's yeah the thing. And I, I, but i mm. think that the, the the thing is that i think as we've already said that the the merit of this film is in its legacy and, and artistry 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 uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> You might say that. Um, <laughs> easy for you to say, but um, the that there's that um, angle to it, and I think that the people who are critics are often people who aren't viewing things from that point of view. As far as the artistry, they're more mm. um, doing it from the entertainment value, mm. and they're not artists themselves. Um, you know, very few people who are critics are people who are. are 
artists. So mm. I think that's why this film perhaps didn't succeed with critics in the same way that it did actually inspire other artists. And that might be yeah. the the real legacy of this film rather than it being something that, that does entertain, I suppose. And that's, you know, I think that's backed up by our own viewings of it, to, to be honest. I think it's what Scott's saying there about him, you know, not necessarily being entertained by it, but it's still holding um, uh, enough of a, a, enough as an intrigue mm. for, him, for, for him to go back and watch a second time. Yeah. I think that says that says more about the film um, than maybe realised before we started reviewing it. I like to think I'm not stupid and that I, I, I haven't missed something here. And I think I'm going to benefit more from that second viewing. And mm. I agree. I like to think you're not stupid as thank well. Thank you, thank you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and but by the, the way, mm. your your episode on uh, "It's a Wonderful Life" reduced oh, the me to tears. Reduced me to tears, to tears, tears for all the right for all the right reasons. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, I watched That's... it just after Christmas because I, I just love that film. That, yeah. that film's magic never dies, and you did a lovely episode. Joking oh, aside. Thank you so much. Mm. You you can mm. come back, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying <laughs> to get down. <laughs> We we spoke about critics. Does, does anybody know what the public's reaction to this was? How was it perceived by your general cinema going audience? I'm I'm assuming it didn't make a great deal of money. I think yeah, the fact they had John Lennon would have brought people to the cinema. Yeah. Mm. But the way I look at it, just one thing about those reviews. Again, I, I don't want to. Both those reviewers, Roger Ebert and the other one. Again, they're they're American, and this is. I think we'd agree. Not saying that Americans necessarily are not going to get it, but there is there are British traits. I mean, I'm sure there's American style films that have got that British culture has got, or British viewers would have no understanding of certain parts of American culture. And I think the Britishness of this film and the absurdity, you know, perhaps perhaps would mean that it wouldn't sell well overseas. I mean, that's just speculation, but yeah. I, no, I was just going to say, I think you're right there that the, 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 you know, the entertainment value of this film maybe, you know, is open to question, but certainly the Britishness mm. of it isn't open to question at all. It is, it is, yeah. you know, it is achingly British in some ways. And the, the other thing I'm, I'm thinking like, also now watching it now, you know, we can watch it in our house and we're not sort of going out, we're not going out to the cinema paying money and kind of relying on it for an evening's entertainment as they might have done in, 67 and i i feel like if i went to the cinema to see this in 67 and i'm expecting as you said scott a mm. sort of knockabout comedy yeah i would i would come out of it probably quite depressed because <laughs> it it really does get dark towards the end there's a yeah. kind of hopelessness about it and the michael crawford character is, is in in a funny way almost a tragic character even though he's the one that survives and the tragedy is is in the you know his platoon if you want to call him yeah. that his sort of foot rank and file foot soldiers but I think if I went to the cinema, basically, I'd probably come back disappointed. The, the you know, Beatles at the time. fans would have come back disappointed as well. All the John oh, Lennon Beatles yeah. fans would certainly have been, because as I said, the screen time has yeah. got to be less than five minutes of actual you know, physical screen time that Lennon's there. Anything yeah. else anybody wants to add here? Did you have any more bits you needed to read out at all, Anthony? Was there something you had there? Well, there was a review. I mean, I, I, I don't agree with this, but just, just for the sake, I mean, the, the actual mm. writing is quite good. Uh, Richard Schickel, um, let me see, 
Times. Oh no, he was the life critic. Mm. He said the film reminds one of nothing so much as an ill-organized peace parade with its coalition of pediatricians, housewives, students, flower children, and black power black power advocates shambling along the street. If war is too important a matter to be left to the generals, that's a famous quote, isn't mm-hmm. it? Then peace is too important a matter to be left to those who cannot coherently organize a parade or a movie. Now, I think I like the writing there. I don't necessarily agree with it, but um, that's quite well done. But I think, again, I'd say the whole point is it's not supposed to have a, a through narrative because the whole point is saying that war is chaos and war is, war is like a, a bad production. So in a funny way, it's not that they're making a bad film, but it's a, not a very commercial or particularly entertaining film as a sort of through narrative, as a piece yeah. of entertainment. So I think they're kind of missing the point there, to be honest. Yes, Stephen. Any, <laughs> Stephen, any final thoughts yourself? No, I, I, I can't think of anything we haven't already um, on, gone over. Really, that it's yeah. just to re-emphasise that I think its its merit lies in the artistry and and its legacy in that sense, rather than um, its pure entertainment value, because it's it's not. Um, a straightforward piece of entertainment so um, that would be a something to take on board with regard to ratings now I'm, I'm definitely going to benefit from a second viewing I'm not saying I hated the movie I struggled with it because it wasn't what I was expecting I'm pretty sure that I'm going to go into it with a completely different attitude next time I watch it and my my thoughts would completely change on it I'm sure of that because you can't fault the acting you can't fault the directing it's mm. it's just I, th- I I came out of this quite disappointed that it wasn't the movie that I was I wanted to see uh disappointed that John Lennon didn't have the screen time that I was expecting uh I did laugh out loud at some of you know the the one lines that Anthony mentioned earlier some of the comments some of the references to things like Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia were in there yeah, as well yeah. musically which mm. we haven't mentioned yeah, my, yeah yeah but my rating system is based on letterbox.com where I do my reviews and, and log all my, my viewing and it's a five star rating system and I always base my star ratings on how much I've enjoyed a film not how great the film is how much I think the film is is marvellous or crap depending on what I'm thinking it's how mm. much I enjoyed it at the time and mm. with that in mind I can only give this 2 out of 5 because although I sat through and acknowledged the film I didn't sit there thinking I'm enjoying this I was struggling <laughs> I was actually struggling but Again, we've said this about numerous other movies. If I was to sit down in a couple of months' time and watch that again, that star rating, I bet, will go up to a four. I'm convinced Mm. that once I go in with the attitude that I've got my head around what I'm going to be watching, it will only improve. I don't know how used you are to rating movies and things like that, Anthony. I mean, you can rate Mm. this movie out of ten, you can rate it out of five, you can just give us a verbal appreciation of it so how would how would you summarize your enjoyment or non-enjoyment of the film yeah i mean i said i watched it last night i had an eye on this podcast obviously Mm. and i found it quite exhausting i found um 
you know, after an hour, as I said maybe earlier, the, the point had kind of been made. Yeah. I liked how it got darker as it went on. I liked some of the elements of to do with the inevitability of it. I mean, uh, one, one, one person we didn't mention is James Cossins. Yes. Who actually appeared in an episode of Faulty Towers. He's the guy who says, I die in North Africa because mm. he, he's telling you that where he dies. And then even after he's dead, he comes back and says, I died in North Africa. So it's, um, I'd probably go, yeah, three and a half, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm sort of assuming that if you were to watch this again, because you told me this before we started recording, you need to watch it. You wished you'd watched it a second time. That, that rating yeah. has got to go up, hasn't it, on the second view? I think so. Yeah. It's yeah. probably going to go up to probably only to eight, eight out of 10. So four, yeah. four stars. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because I think I think if I watched it again, I'd kind of probably probably pick a situation where I was extremely kind of relaxed and I didn't want to do too much work and I could kind of just let it Done wash over critique, me. Kind of yeah. Because if you try and get too invested in it, it's just a sort of tumble of images. Yeah. Um, what about from from a John Lennon point of view? How was mm. your reaction to that? I mean, obviously, you must have been disappointed that his screen time was so limited. He was in it a tiny bit more than I'd expected. Like he popped up more. Hmm. But there really wasn't much there. I no. mean, there really, other than I said that death scene, and he doesn't really. It's, I suppose the polite word is naturalistic. Yeah. You know what I mean? If if you actually gave him a speech, he's he's sort of very hesitant. I think he was very nervous making it. I think he was actually quite scared being on this film set with all these people who knew what they were doing. Of course, yeah. And he could have himself a guy who knew how to write songs wasn't really an actor so i don't think any beatles fans looking for anything like that are going to be well i don't think they're going to be particularly uh, happy with it no no, no. i can imagine that was the reaction at the time as well yeah, yeah. Stephen, your aversion to star ratings tell us what you thought <laughs> well yeah my my rating system being based upon how i'd recommend it as far as um you know how likely people should actually go watch it and, and and what format they should do so in um this it's it's a difficult film to recommend um mm. i think it, it 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 would be strongly recommended to people who are um students or, or particular th- fans of, of film less so maybe to people who are um lenin fans because it, it might not tick the box so much from there because of the limited amount that you you get from him mm. but um, definitely for, for people who are fans of film or, or film students and stuff like that, I'd recommend go out of the way a bit. Everybody else, I, I wouldn't really recommend that they make any special effort to see it, to be perfectly mm. honest, because I don't feel that um, the entertainment value would be there, um, unfortunately. So it's got limited recommendation in that sense um, yeah. to to go and seek it out. But again, it's not one that I think necessarily um, needs to be seen um, on the big screen either I think as as you said um, Anthony said there about going to the cinema um, to see it if you're you know, if you sitting and watching it at home mm. um, I think makes it more palatable in some senses Definitely, I hadn't thought about that actually the, the film student angle mm. I mean I hadn't thought of this as well while we're talking about Magical Mystery Tour Yeah, um, is very much in this vein because you watch if you went for a night out to watch Magical Mystery Tour, I mean, that's only, that's not even an hour. So it's not really comparable. That's only 50 minutes. But a lot of people hate that. But now it's getting this 
cult following. And yeah. I think last night when I was watching it, because of this podcast, I kind of had my film analyst hat on mm. and it was kind of going a bit crazy. So <laughs> that's a very good point, Stephen. I think, I think film students will absolutely totally get off on this. You know, mm. there's, there's a million references in it. Very yeah. subtle. And I think what you just said there is it's something that we actually quite commonly say that even films that we um, have watched a number of times, we, we when we watch it for review on a podcast, either this one or, or any of the others, you're suddenly looking at it with a critical eye rather than uh, your, your normal viewer's eye, and that right. sometimes makes things worse, sometimes makes it better. So I, I can understand where you're coming from um, from your viewing of this last night you, you you've got a different eye to it and that does create a different impression um for you to go away with yeah i was going to mention magical mystery tour earlier actually because we said something about beatles fans coming away disappointed mm. um and it was probably the same reaction when magical mystery tour was shown because it was the bbc's big boxing day highlight wasn't it of their christmas schedule that year it was it was yeah. and the backlash from that was incredible you know because yeah, they showed it in black and white yeah and the whole point the whole point <laughs> of it is is the the color fate the the other thing we didn't mention about this is that some of the cinematography though those bits where they um they show dunkirk mm. and you have all the i didn't understand all this thing about the different color flares did you understand that where john lennon's going green 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 and chuck's a green flare no. and then the toy soldiers in green and then later on then did you say something about that Stephen? earlier about the different colors the, i mean the, the, what the actual i don't know what the relevance of the colors of the flare is i think that's just some kind of coding that uh, I, well, so I took it as has been some kind of coding to uh, the flares that you use in different situations to, you know, to signal to your own people what situation is where you are, whether you know you need rescuing or whether you've secured a piece of land or, um, or whatever. I think that's maybe the the um, upshot of that. But yeah. no, I, I don't know whether there was any specific um, colours associated with different battles for a certain reason or any connection to characters because of that. But each one was meant to have a different colour. Um, each battle scene and then therefore the character as a toy soldier afterwards as having died was meant to you know just keep carrying on that color that was the battle right. um but i don't know if there's any specific um sort of use of certain colors for certain reasons i don't i, I don't know whether that was something that they went into or whether it was just different colors for the sake of being different colors yeah would you agree though that it looked amazing like the the locations and the Oh, I've got no problem with the cinematography at all. Richard uh, Lester's a great movie maker. We know that. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's the content. <laughs> <laughs> yes, their style, you know, the style of, of it is, is um, one of its selling points, really. Uh, and the, bit, the bits where he was sort of intercutting with Dunkirk, it was almost like, are we in North Africa or are we in Dunkirk? Does it really matter? You know, we're going to get the shit blown out of us. Whichever way we're, you know, sorry to be a bit dark, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of, I loved all that stuff and uh, sort of juxtaposition of black and white and color. And, yeah, yeah. I think that's another one of its merits. This is a very good looking film. Uh, this is, uh, in conclusion, it's a two watch movie. I think we, we need to agree on that. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think it, sure. it benefit from a second watch. And, yeah. I, and I bet if we were to get together in six months' time and re review this, <laughs> it will be completely different. Um, we could we could end up hating it completely. We could end up loving it, but I reckon our opinions will be completely different to what we've said today because we will we will see so much more 
because we've watched it in a more relaxed attitude as and yeah. said you switch off that critic's brain and just just let it flow over you and watch it for what it is next time round without having to to do the hard work so that'd be interesting to see we might come back and and just on a future episode just spend 10 minutes just rethinking this movie through but there's a lot to was, take in mm. yeah i think if the three of us do a film in the future the night before we could all watch this again and then as you said have a recap sneak it in at yeah. the beginning yeah mm. yeah i think that would you know would have merit an update that'd be fun yeah mm. Well, with that in mind, talking of future movies, you'll be pleased to know, Anthony, you have passed the audition, sir. So you are, hey. <laughs> you are going to be invited back. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a very short break. We're going to be back with what we're watching next time. Okay, so next time, not necessarily next time Stephen and I will be together, but the next time the three of us will be together, which hopefully won't be too long, we're going to throw the ball back into your court, Anthony, and from what we can gather, it's going to be non-Beatles, non-John Lennon related this time round. Yeah, this is a film that I saw when I was a kid and for some reason just really liked it. I've always liked heist films. It's a film called A Prize of Arms mm -hmm. from 1962 and the main selling point, I guess, is Stanley Baker. And it's um, it's basically some guys, I think they're ex-soldiers and they're trying to rob an army barracks. But it's got some wonderful sort of traits and tropes of black and white British films. But it's also very entertaining and there will be all kinds of people from uh, British films, rather like today, that will pop up. And so, you'll suddenly go, oh, yeah, it's that guy. A perfect Real so, Britannia <laughs> movie we're saying here, then. This I is, would say so, yeah. yeah. Definitely sounds like it's completely within the wheelhouse of this podcast. So, yes, well done. Big hmm. Stanley Baker fans. We're learning to love him as as the podcast develops because he was a bit of a an unknown quantity for us, apart from Zulu. I think that's fair to say, wasn't it, before we started doing this, Stephen? So. Yeah, I think you know we recognise that Following his his death, I think his his legacy is is centred upon um, Zulu. When really, if you look back over what other things he was in, and you know, from Van and Playground across to other things as well, like this we're about to do, he had a lot more range to him and a, a lot more uh, merit to him in in the history of British cinema. And um, it it deserves more examination to highlight because he, he was more than just Zulu. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think I think if you like Hell Drivers, which I know mm -hmm. you guys did that one, I think you'll like this Prize of Arms. It's kind of similar wheelhouse, you know, the Stanley Baker being Stanley Baker in the best sense of the word, you know, Excellent. the best traits of him. It would have been yep. his birthday yesterday. It would have been 92 yesterday had he still been with oh, us. Wow. Yeah. Um, right, right. Looking forward to that. So that's a Prize in Arms. Prize, is it a Prize of Arms? Prize in Arms. Prize of Arms. Prize, prize of, of Arms. arms. 1962. Yeah. Looking yes. forward to that. We'll do that in a few weeks' time. Okay. Before you go, let's talk about the Glass Onion podcast, sir. Please, yes. Please tell the Glass listener. On... Mm. Give it a full title. Give it a full title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Glass Onion, colon, mm -hmm. very important, on John Lennon. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually host it from SoundCloud, and that might, might be one of the best places to go because it's got all the pictures. and uh, it's. I like SoundCloud. It's a website I like, and it's sort of, looks quite colourful and uh, that's the homepage and then it's on 
all the usual places, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean. There's a Facebook page, which is the same title. And then the Twitter is at Onion Lennon, which is capital O, capital L. So, yeah. Highly recommended. And I'm not just saying that as a guest, as a Beatles fan, it is a podcast I would have listened to had I not been invited on, mate. And uh, I'm spreading the word out there for you just to get the interest and the and the listenership up because thank you the the depth of your research and the quality of your guests is incredible it puts other podcasts to shame mate and i'm not just saying that because you're sitting the other end of a skype line to actually get two of the quarry men on there is is something to behold well done mate absolutely thank you thank you i think my my i mean like i said at the beginning I've, i've been researching this in a way for 30 years so i've just been building up knowledge and so I, I do research, yes, but a lot of it's already kind of there, if you know what I mean. And yeah. I think my passion comes through, you know. It I have quite does. A, yeah. No. I have quite a sort of measured style, I suppose. You, I don't know if you find this, but when you start podcasting, you, you never quite know how your voice is going to come out. Oh, yeah. And, on, mm. and yeah. on my podcast, it seems to come out, a lot of people call it quite soothing, which <laughs> sounds sounds good, you know. People I'll, I'll say they, they put the real Britannia on before they go to bed to help knock them out, mate. <laughs> yeah, and I, they, they play in mind to scare, like, hoodlums away from shops and, and things. So. <laughs> All right. And just want to say this has been, this has been absolutely uh, a joy. It's been a delight. Oh, mate, it's been a pleasure um, to have you here. I mean, mm. you know me, I like talking about anything Beatles-related. To mm. tie something in to our podcast here at the Real Britannia just fortuitous mate and we've got more Beatles stuff we can talk about in future as well as Stanley Baker and other people so looking forward to having you back very very soon thank you for being here today Anthony I'm sure Stephen's going to echo that as well absolutely isn't it you know great to have your insight and and knowledge on this um, film as well as you know just enjoying your your company so I'm very happy that we're going to be doing um doing another show to, together and hopefully they'll be able to have more opportunities after that as well because it, um, it's been, been good having you on. Yeah, you're very welcome. It was great. And Scott and I are actually going to meet in the flesh apparently at some point. A couple of weeks' time, hopefully. Yes, it's, we a bold, it's a bold step, isn't it? But I'll tell you what, if you do it in a Weatherspoons, he'll, he'll end up wanting to show off with his, um, with his app and you'll get a free drink <laughs> out. <laughs> All right. Don't, don't okay. let out my secrets of the Weatherspoon app, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll definitely go to a Weber Spoons, mate. I'll show you. <laughs> okay. So I'll see you soon. Then. Very, right. very soon. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Real Britannia podcast. Anthony, Stephen, thank you both once again and see you very, very soon. See you later. Take care. Positive shower. Positive shower. Well, Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. Ha, ha, ha.